Hi there. You're listening to the final bonus episode of Three Talks recorded at Bloom San Francisco. If you missed the first two episodes, make sure to go back in your podcast feed to take a listen. Before we get started, we'd like to tell you about 25, the SEA's new magazine. Issue 2 is out now. This season, our team of contributors tackle a series of topics from Arabica's shrinking market share to insights from the specialty cheese industry. Read Issue 2 of 25 Magazine on our website at seanews.coffee forward slash 25. That's seanews.coffee forward slash 25. One last thing. Don't miss your chance to present at the 2018 Specialty Coffee Expo and to potentially appear on the SEA podcast. The SEA is accepting lecture proposals through November 14th. Submit your proposal at seanews.coffee forward slash lectures 18. That's seanews.coffee forward slash lectures 18. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to the Barista Guild's Bloom podcast series, brought to you by Olam Specialty Coffee, connecting roasters to the finest specialty green coffees. The following is a talk presented live at Bloom San Francisco, hosted by the Barista Guild. Welcome to SEA and Barista Guild of America. Welcome to San Francisco. Uh, Our Bay Area coffee community is a mighty one and a strong one and a diverse one. And we're proud to have, be, have uh, San Francisco hosting this great event and a lot of people coming from all over the country or around the world. Um, our session here is called Fast, Cheap, Good, Pick Two, Specialty Convenience Coffee. And so anyone who's been paying attention to the specialty coffee industry over the past 15, 20 years, we've gone through a certain kind of arc. And the story's obviously not over, it's continuing to evolve. Um, a lot of the early 2000s through the end of 2000s were really spent trying to differentiate ourselves from what we might call second wave coffee, more either commercial coffee or the kind of coffee where it's essentially like fast food. And we've been trying to elevate the coffee experience and not only deliver that to our consumers, but establish sort of a foothold for ourselves as an industry. That said, one might say that that was a certain kind of adolescence where we were, there's time to grow up. And as we continue on in terms of evolving our specialty coffee industry, we continue to change and evolve. And what's emerged over the past five, 10 years is this growing category that, like a lot of things, seemed at first to be contradictory, but more and more we're trying to understand and really kind of essentially uh, make a point and sell it to the marketplace. And that is the idea of convenience coffee, that specialty coffee isn't something that takes 10, 15 minutes, but can be something that's quick, that can be something that's cheap, that's good, um, and so on. And so we have a great panel today that represent a few of the uh, corners or the um, categories within that realm. And I'm going to introduce them one at a time. Uh, first, round of applause for Tony Konechny. Tony's from Yes Please. He lives in Los Angeles, California. Uh, yes Please is related to um, local, which is a interesting new dynamic uh, story in the food world. And uh, Tony's also sometimes known as Tonks, 
So welcome, Tony. Can you, I'm going to ask each one the person the same question. Can you just give a quick, like, two-minute, like, your coffee story, like, how you got to where you are today? Oh, man. Um, a two-minute version of that? <laughs> uh, so I think, like most people, I ended up in coffee kind of by accident um, that I thought I wanted to get out of the rat race and uh, avoid having a real job. So I started working in a coffee shop. Um, Fell in love with espresso, fell into roasting, um, just kind of made my way uh, down the coast uh, with coffee. And, um, and, and I think always feeling, and I, and I think this is true of a lot of us, that um, you have one foot in the industry <laughs> um, and another foot kind of on the consumer side that we're, um, we're our most enthusiastic customers in addition to working inside of the industry. So. Uh, I, I think kind of wrestling with, with feeling critical of the industry that I'm also a part of and the, the back and forth between that is, is, is kind of the dynamic. That How many years have you been in coffee me. now? Uh, I don't know, I guess like uh, 15, 16. Cool. Well, round of applause for Tony. <laughs> Next, we're going to bring up Kent Sheridan. Kent is from Voila Coffee in Bend, Oregon. And Kent might represent the other end as far as a relative newbie. Tell us your coffee story. This many years. <laughs> um, uh, I, I guess I come from a light film background um, and I left that industry because I didn't like it very much and uh, found myself applying to be a barista. Um, they turned me down and that made me really mad. So I decided I'm going to do it myself. So um, I created a coffee cart um, and have been working in coffee for four years now. Um, and beyond the cart selling that business, I've been really focused on trying to find solutions in white spaces in the industry. And that's kind of me. Very, and, cool. Very um, cool. It, it can be vo or viola coffee too. Uh, the, the oh, it says viola up there. Yeah, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> One more big round of applause for Kent. <laughs> Next, we're going to bring up Umeko. Come on up, Umeko. Umeko Motoyoshi is, is the head of coffee at Sudden Coffee, based right here in San Francisco. Tell us your coffee story. Um, yeah, so I am half Norwegian and half Japanese, and my dad was a Japanese tea ceremony master. So I, from childhood, was really enthralled with how you can make someone feel when you serve them a beverage, um, and how much kindness and how much humanness can be contained within that act. Um, so I fell in love with coffee uh, right out of high school, and um, Throughout my journey in coffee, I was always looking for that kindness and that humanness. Um, and I found that at, at Sudden, at Sudden Coffee. So we make uh, amazing instant coffee. Um, we serve it with kindness, with a human touch. And we make it accessible for uh, everyone, regardless of your location geographically, um, and also like where you are in terms of familiarity with specialty coffee. Um, and I'm lucky enough to lead product development. So everything around the coffee, from choosing the coffees to building the blends to working on the process, um, 
that's what I do, and it's a pretty rad job. Very cool. One more big round of applause for Omeko. <laughs> then finally, we're going to bring up Molly Irwin. Molly is from Fellow Products, one of our fine sponsors here. Actually, unrelated, but there's a fellow table back there. Molly, tell us your coffee story. Um, so my background, I'm a mechanical engineer by trade, and I actually have a background in robotics and consumer electronics, and I loved coffee as a consumer and decided my next step should be doing something in that space. Um, so I went, I, I'm working for Fellow Products, and we design beautifully functional tools for at-home coffee brewers to baristas in cafes. So we're trying to bridge the gap between the home and the, and the cafe, um, and like bring you beautifully functional tools, not just functional, not just beautiful. One more big round of applause for Molly. Can we slide seven? So speaking of which, Molly, let's dive into Fellow products and talk about how Fellow relates. Talk about what we're looking up at here. Uh, so here on one side, you have our Stag Pour-Over uh, kettle, which is a stovetop version. And at the back table, you can see our new electric version that's coming out in September. And then the pour-over system, which consists of a double-walled vacuum-insulated stainless steel dripper, double-walled glass carafe, and tasting glasses. And this is a system designed, um, we've done several thoughtful um, things with it to try to help people who may not be um, familiar with pour-over coffee to be able to use that in their home, but at the same time not compromise with those features to make it unusable at a cafe. So for instance, the dripper, ha the dripper has a drip cup on the bottom that also can be used as a measuring cup. So you, there are like two dots on the inside, one dot's for a single serving, two dots is for double serving, so you can approximate without a scale what's the volume of the coffee that you want to use. And then on the um, craft, you also have a single dot and a double dot, so you could approximate how much water to add when you're doing the pour over. Um, and so that's basically So we're talking about fast, cheap, good. I think fast, we can put fast and easy in there. So in that way, like, what's wrong with using scales? We all use scales. Like, why don't you want people to use scales? I do want people to use scales if you have one. Um, we love Akaya. We've partnered with them with our pour over uh, electric kettle. Like, we want people to use scales, but it's a huge, like, hurdle to jump over for somebody who is like, oh, yeah, I like to cook. Oh, I want to make coffee now. Well, I have a Keurig. Like, how are you going to get those people to like use a scale and all of this? Like, you need five hundred dollars worth of equipment all of a sudden in your kitchen to be able to get into pour-over coffee, or you can pay six dollars for your pour-over down the street. So, how do you bridge that gap? So, in that way, you're really trying to solve the problems of the home consumer. You know, professionals are going to do with it what they wish mm -hmm. and what they want to. But talk a little bit more about that. We can pull up slide eight. Um, a little bit more about the development, like what were the sort of problems that came up during the development that you really wanted to solve? Sure. So we, we approach all of our designs as human-centered design. So we really want to get at what are the issues that people have with whatever the space is. For us, it's for coffee, specifically with pour over. So we'll sit down and we'll think about what are the things that people have problems with and then interview people, talk to them, make rough prototypes, have them use that, and then gather what are these insights, those like key points that are like, why is this a difficult? For you at home to brew and it turns out the equipment's one the um, how much how much coffee do i use how much water do i add i don't know it's like 
is it like tea? Can I just like put it together and then it'll be fine? Or does it have to be very, very exact? I mean, in, in that research, I mean, have you, did you find that people are pretty confused in general about these things? If you have never had any experience with making your own coffee at home, maybe you've used a Mr. Coffee to like put coffee in and you stick it in and then it just push the button. They have absolutely no idea what to right. do. And when you go to the cafe, it's like the science lab kind of. Very cool. This is slide five. So, Omeko, talk a little bit about Sudden Coffee. So, Sudden is specialty instant coffee, again, based out here in San Francisco. So, similarly, like, what were the sort of problems that Sudden has been facing and is trying to solve? Oh, totally. Um, so, I, a lot of our work has been around creating understanding. Um, and there, it, when we started, was this idea of what instant coffee is. And we have worked so much um, on expanding that understanding. Um, so right out of the gate, you know, we were using coffees that were uh, uh, Ethiopian coffees, Kenyan coffees, beautiful specialty coffees um, with totally different profiles from what you would expect, you know, from an instant coffee. Um, now I've been uh, working on blends. I figured out a way to make blends that's really innovative, um, really interesting, and this is another way that we're um, expanding understanding and creating understanding so that you know people can really look at like the the coffees that we're putting out we, i have this calendar of blends that i'm so excited about um, and really see that uh, instant coffee is such an innovative medium with so much potential um, so that is the work that i think has been really challenging and also so rewarding we'll talk a little bit so we're almost jumping ahead in terms of like instant specialty coffee. Traditionally, a lot of us in the room, this room, probably you included, have spent a lot of energy trying to say like, this is not good coffee. Our coffee that we are working with, and you worked for some specialty roasters, you know, our coffee is good coffee and here's the difference sort of thing. And to take something that was sort of the purview and the wheelhouse of quote unquote cheap coffee and lower quality coffee, and I'll plan to talk about that mashup. Like, why is that okay to do? Why is it not okay? Because <laughs> it's been yucky. <laughs> right? Um, right, well, so, uh, so there, um, I think it comes back to that kindness um, and that meeting people um, where they're at and not just meeting people where they're at, but, but really celebrating people where they're at. Um, and uh, I want to create something that anyone can enjoy regardless of um, whether they have a Chemex at home or whether they have only ever used a Keurig or only ever used Folgers. Um, and I love specialty coffee and I'm so passionate about it um, and want to present it in this way that is really kind and is really accessible. Yeah, so Kent, you're also, in that a similar sort of space, just pull up slide three. Um, I, I gotta give you props for this packaging. It's really fun. So you're actually using, it looks like what, what I think, is it what I think it looks you like? You can say it. Yeah. yeah, it's a cigarette flip top box. It is a flip top box, just like cigarettes. Yeah. Correct. So your, your, your company also is in a similar sort of space, making specialty instant coffee. Um, I mean, ultimately, is it, it's like, is it a garbage in, garbage out kind of situation where if you're using cheap coffee and putting it through the process that it maybe isn't going to be good, but being able to use good quality specialty coffee, put it through the process, there's nothing wrong with the process, it's more 
the, the source material? It, it's definitely both. It's, it's about the care put into the process as well. But most definitely garbage has been put in with traditional instant coffee and zero care and effort has been made to source anything that's acceptable for people to be drinking. Um, and yeah, the process of traditional instant coffee is just horrible. There's just no care to the end consumer, thought, consideration taken into representing coffee well whatsoever. Um, so at Voila, what we tried to do is source great coffees from great roasters and be able to represent them well and extract them well to where there is that transparency. And that's what I think is so cool about instant coffee and specialty instant coffee is we finally have um, room for transparency all the way from farm to roaster to cup. And I think that's really special and something that um, makes it really easy and lowers the barriers of entry for somebody at home to explore specialty for the first time. Right. So I know a lot of these processes are proprietary. We don't want to talk about them from the stage, but in that way, like I think one big curious curiosity, like in terms of the brewing part, mm -hmm. um, I mean, what can you tell us? Like what you've done, uh, we talked earlier, yeah. you've done some experiments. Like what can you tell us about the brewing side of things? Yeah, so the brewing, um, our approach to it is we really wanted to represent each coffee well. We have several different coffees from different roasters. And so uh, we take each coffee as its individual uh, origin and roast profile, and we try to extract it and represent it the best way possible. Um, and we do that in our form, and uh, it's kind of like a filter or drip profile instant coffee to where um, it's really clean, um, has a really crisp finish, and um, it's also really good iced. Very cool. Can we pull up slide four? You'll, you'll, you'll see the, what's inside the little flip top box. You have a bunch of packets inside. How yep. many inside each box? Uh, five in each box. Very cool. Very cool. Slide one, please. Um, Tony, so local, yes, please. Tell us a little bit about the company. What's going on here? Um, yeah, so the, the short version is uh, two years ago, um, uh, Roy Choi and Daniel Patterson uh, kicked off a, a, an Indiegogo campaign for this. Two um, celebrity chefs, you could call them. Yep. Yeah, um, and, and coming from kind of two different worlds um, that, that overlap a lot, uh, Roy being kind of the instigator of the modern food truck movement with his uh, Kogi barbecue taco truck in LA and um, really having an ethic around kind of street food culture and feeding people and, and kind of visiting communities and neighborhoods that maybe aren't like fine dining uh, areas. And then Daniel coming from the very high end of, you know, two Michelin stars, um, uh, fine dining in San Francisco, and, and this kind of mashup of, of can, can chefs and culinary creatives solve this problem of um, how to feed people in food deserts, how to um, create a sustainable business that gives people uh, skills that are portable and, um, and addresses a laundry list of, uh, of kind of challenging social issues. And I think that's, you know, still in its nascent stage uh, two years later and kind of working through the kinks, but... Um, but ultimately it's sort of like, how do we solve the fast food problem? Right, that, that um, it, it's, it's about uh, kind of meeting people where they are and seeing, can you take some of these ideas about uh, you know, culinary technique or nutrition and do them maybe at scale um, and maybe kind of 
put them into a vernacular where, um, where different audiences can, can embrace it and not necessarily have to buy into a lot of the, the sort of signifiers and things that we look at when we're looking at kind of fine dining or ethical dining. And so how does coffee fit into that? Uh, so uh, they reached out to me um, with uh, not, not even really a challenge, just kind of a question of, you know, if, if we did coffee for a dollar a cup, would it, would it suck? Like, is there a way to do that and make it work? And, and I sat down and kind of gave them a rap about, well, here's how I would approach it if I were So you. first you said yes, and then you said, yes, it'll suck. <laughs> and then it has to suck, and here's why. And then you showed them a Chemex, and you showed them a V60. Right. You explained, well, you schooled them, right? Well, I mean, so, so coming off of, um, you know, I, I guess to, to try to, um, you know, again, give like a, a really short thesis, I think, um, you know, in, in my time in, in Seattle at Victrola and my time at Intelligentsia, um, I, I always kind of felt that, that this third wave nascent thing that we were a part of um, was representing to our potential audience that coffee is this very challenging thing, which, which it, it is, it's true. Um, but I think that we, we disempower a lot of our potential customers and allies, that we make this thing seem so unobtainable, so difficult, requiring expensive equipment, being fussy, that we tell people we have the best coffee in the world and yet we screw it up half the time that we're serving it and that that's just kind of part of the conditions of specialty coffee. And, um, and I've, I've always felt that narrative was, was really self-defeating and kind of driven by the fact that the, the leaders in coffee, you know, a decade ago, um, the, the roasters that were kind of doing the best work were also in this kind of hyper-competitive wholesale space, which was really the bulk of their business. And so in chasing differentiation, we've made coffee really unapproachable to an enthusiast class that would happily buy good beans and brew good coffee at home if, if the equipment weren't so costly and intimidating and if, if the messages that we were putting out weren't that you needed six months of training on your stirring technique before you can get a decent cup of coffee and you need a microgram scale. And um, so I've, I've always kind of taken the approach and I think with, with what I did with Tonks, my, um, my subscription business uh, from earlier was, was saying like if, if we take the first step of kind of giving people a really good product where we feel like we're, you know, we're getting as close to an A plus every time we can and sort of eliminate the, the guesswork of which of these coffees off the shelf should you start with. Um, and then, you know, kind of have this interaction with people where you're meeting them where they are. If they have a blade grinder, great. You don't tell them step <gasps> one is that they have to, you know, go out and spend $200 on a new burr grinder. Um, you sort of work the delta from whatever they were doing yesterday is the coffee that they're going to make with your product today, like such a market improvement that you've set them on the path towards um, indoctrinating them into our weird world. Um, so. Fast forwarding into this, I, I think for, for me looking at it, um, you know, I thought, look, I'm happy to give these guys advice and try to steer them in the right direction. Um, and uh, Daniel was quickly like, well, why don't, why don't you spin up a roasting company to supply us? And, um, and I was foolish enough to say yes and um, couldn't resist the challenge. And I think uh, we've talked a lot in the coffee world for, uh, for years about kind of how bad restaurant coffee is and 
what a crime it is and kind of waving our fist at celebrity chefs and restaurants for screwing up their coffee programs. And I think that um, part of that is that uh, because we, you know, and, and not to sort of lay out my indictment of where we are as an industry, but I think that we, we don't respect our customers enough to give us the validation that we're doing good work, that we look to, you know, food writers and celebrity chefs. And I mean, it's it, from a marketing perspective, it makes sense. Um, so I, so how, does it, how do we get from there to a dollar, one dollar cup yeah, of coffee? So, so, in, so in my, my, my first thought in saying yes to this was that what a mic drop moment it would be if we can do, rest, uh, we're going to solve restaurant coffee, but we're going to do it in a fast food context. Um, and the truth is, is that it's actually much easier to do good coffee in a fast food environment than it is in a fine dining environment. Um, with local, we decided that the coffee production would be a back of house operation rather than a front of house operation. So you have the same people that are doing kind of line cook work and, and all the back of house stuff are responsible for maintaining the cleanliness of the coffee machine, for cycling through the air pots and, um, and the, you know, I, I, I talked about this a little bit in that New York Times article that, that a lot of people have read. Um, but the, the, the trick that uh, Sumi Ali, uh, who a lot of you know, came up with was, so we end up doing about four times the amount of cold coffee as we do hot coffee. So we're using a big Curtis Brewer, um, gallon and a half batches, and uh, we will cycle through those every hour, whether we've sold one cup or 20 cups and pull those into a Cambro, throw those on the walk-in. And then at the end of the night, we do a, a cold brew concentrate batch and blend the two together in a certain ratio and we end up with our cold coffee product for the next day. Frankenstein coffee. Right, so yeah. it's, it's nearly zero waste. And that's one of the things that allows us to, to only charge a dollar and still buy very good green coffee. But is it good? I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned cold coffee. We have a few categories in this general space. Let me go back to the title slide. In this general space uh, of convenience, um, we were not able to get a bottled, uh, R what we call RTD, ready to drink in the room. But that said, um, I mean, Fundamentally, especially for me, what's interesting about this topic is that we have this idea of specialty coffee. I talked about it earlier as being something like we're growing out of our adolescence. So part of that sort of analogy of adolescence is that we are defining what specialty coffee is through our actions, through what we do. A lot of the single cup stuff we've been doing over the past you know, decade plus is really saying like this is a special thing. You know? Now we see people going back more to batch brew and some of these other brewing methods because it's like we don't have to prove ourselves anymore and maybe we can relax. And so to some degree, um, what we're talking about here is what are those, what is our comfort level as an industry, as a community and as individuals, as coffee professionals, as to how much we're pushing to where that line is between where specialty is and where, you know, commercial commodity, you know, what, what have you kind of coffee is. So that's it, Umeko, tell me a little bit with Sudden Coffee, has it been confusing for people? Are they able to get it right away? Like in terms of your customer base, like what's that response been? So yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, you know, for our customers primarily, it's the best coffee they've ever had. We have, um, we're so lucky to have these 
really diehard um, customers who uh, love the product. And um, for them, it isn't necessarily uh, a matter of like, is this specialty, is it commodity? Um, they're like, this is amazing coffee and I love it. And I love that you guys put a handwritten note in my um, order and I love that you guys sent me like a cute little gift and, um, and it makes my life so, uh, so much easier so I can do so much um, more in my day. Uh, so the conversation, you know, in, it, with our customers has really been about like, yeah, the coffee's really good. Um, so as far as like within the industry, you know, I think it's really easy to say like, hey, yeah, we are using specialty coffee. You know, we're using uh, coffee that we buy roasted from 49th Parallel, which is one of the best roasters in the world. Um, it's, it's green that is sourced um, really ethically and everyone in the value chain is, uh, is being considered and um, we are really proud of this, this product that's produced with so much care. Molly, do, do the customers for the fellow products, do they think of this as like a high-end specialty type product? Is it just like a general platform? Are people putting like grocery store sort of cheap coffee through their fellow gear? Like how, how have you seen the, the usage out there? Uh, well, there's like different worlds that we're going on. So we like sell our products in Williams Sonoma, Creighton Barrel, Sur La Table. Um, I would put those people in both categories actually, uh, because of very different customer bases for those shops. We also have our stuff in the MoMA gift shop, and so it's a high design product. We have them in various um, third wave coffee retail locations and shops. And it's really like you're, you're having to like blend these worlds and find an overlap. And we want to be a bridge and a gap that's friendly and approachable for people of any, of, on any side to be able to come and use these products and feel like it's, they're able to make excellent coffee where either they didn't know how to before or they're already and you know, have their collection of 25 pour overs. And this is another. See, I mean, straddling both worlds in that way. I mean, are you not seeing confusion? I mean, in general for us, it's like, we tend to see like, this is specialty something. This is, you know, a for bad coffee. Like we, you know, uh, Tony talked about like blade grinders, whatever, like that's not for anyone who's serious about it. This kind of grinder is, and so, I mean, you're, but you're seeing usage on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think it's black and white. It's a gray scale so, or a color scale, whatever. Like, you're never going to find one product in for our stuff that is only one side or the other. Some people from the, like, um, Folgers side might never touch our products because it's actually just too much for them or right. to whatever but like if you're interested and you you are curious and you're investigative about the coffee specialty coffee world you will want to use our products to get you into it's like a gateway drug i guess gotcha yeah. kent have you seen speaking of like have you seen or heard about customers turning over from like a grocery store instant coffee over to the specialty instant yeah absolutely i mean i think it's funny um we see a, a big 50-50 split between specialty drinkers and uh, like normal coffee drinkers. Um, but we've only given our coffee out to our Kickstarter backers, so we do have a small pool. But uh, for the specialty drinkers, 
it's funny that they're so confused that there's not grounds in there because they're just so <laughs> unfamiliar with what instant is. And then for um, instant drinkers, yeah, I mean, they're, they're just blown away that it tastes better than the fresh cup of coffee they get at their local coffee shop and better than anything they make at home. Um, and it, it's really exciting and gives me a lot of energy to see and hear stories about people who try it and say that they have had their coffee with cream and sugar um, for 10 years and they've never enjoyed a black cup of coffee. And they were on the road or they were camping and they didn't have cream and sugar and it was the first time they finished a black cup of coffee and are converted. They actually use those words. They say like, I'm, I'm bought in. Like, this is how I want to drink coffee now. It was incredible and so smooth. And I think part of that is because there's, there's no pre preconceived notions about what they're getting. It's just, I mean, it is what it is. They put it in the cup. They don't have to know anything. They don't have to know about ratios and blade grinders and this and that, you know? Um, and they can just walk into it from like ev what everybody's been saying, like where they're at. Where I, I want to, we're going to open up to overall discussion with, with everybody. But before that, I want to touch, like kind of finish up talking a little bit more about that idea of where people are. Like three of you have said that. Actually, all of you have said that in a different way. And in a way, this is the thing that one might pinpoint as being a disruptive thing that's actually very different, right? Is that up to, up to now, we've been very, a little bit pushy maybe, very insistent and, and prescriptive about, like if you want a great coffee experience, here are the 64 step, easy steps, quick and easy steps in order to get there, whether you're making it at home or, oh, you want great coffee? Just come to the most difficult parking area in San Francisco and, you know, circle the block for two hours. And then if you're able to find one, walk the eight blocks and come into one of our shops, stand in line for 45 minutes, you know, and then have someone grab your wrong drink and then take all that whole experience and to completely ch change it into a different way. Like Omeka, you and I talked about that a little bit. Tell me more. Like you talk about kindness, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, well, so I guess first, you know, the, the blade grinder thing, um, <laughs> as an industry, you know, and, and I was part of this when I started in coffee too, um, we ha we, it's easy for us to become fixated and on the sort of dogma of you brew your coffee in this way and then it's specialty. And it's kind of like, well, how, like, <laughs> Somebody, um, you know, the person who like grew this coffee, are you gonna tell them like, um, no, it's not specialty anymore because, you know, somebody ground it with a blade grinder. So, you know, no, like this is a really beautiful product um, and it is specialty coffee and it has that integrity. Um, and no matter whether you use a, a blade grinder or, or a burr grinder and, and what we're doing is a lot um, more than that. It's, it's, it's a bigger picture. Um, so for me, you know, like I, I think of my part in this as, um, as being human and, uh, and welcoming and sharing this thing that was, that was created and touched by so many, um, hands with so much immediacy and so much care and so much skill and just really presenting that to people in a way that, um, 
helps them feel just as excited about it as I am, just as appreciative as as I am, you know? And we, on our, you know, like on our website, it's like you can go to our website and you can learn you, all the stats on the, the farm that where this coffee comes from, or you cannot, you know? Um, it's an opt-in kind of situation. Sure. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, and so again, it just comes back to like, this is really good coffee that we are serving um, with kindness and we are, we are making it something that's very welcoming and very accessible. Tony, tell us more, meeting people where they are, what does that mean for Yes, Please, and for local? Um, and for you, for that matter. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, riffing off what you're saying and, and kind of, I think, to the point of the question is, um, like, do, is it necessary, if, if, if the product is specialty, if, if we know that, that we're sourcing good coffee, that, that, that we're happy with all the practices up to the point of that, that, that product and that retail experience, how necessary is it for, for the person on the receiving end of that to buy into all of the other sort of second order things about why that product is special? Do we need their validation right in that moment of anything other than the fact that this is a product that tastes good? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's kind of where that, um, you know, in the, in the context of kind of an orthodox third wave coffee shop, I think you, you feel like you want people to, to buy into the whole picture. You want to get them a, a partisan for, for our team and our movement. Um, and I feel like we've maybe kind of crested that a little bit. I, I think probably years ago we, we hit the ceiling of, you know, where the sort of cultural relevance of like, you know, latte art and third wave coffee, at least in cities where it's as ubiquitous as it is here, that, that um, you know, we're already kind of the, the butt of jokes and comedy, like everybody knows what. I think avocado toast has taken some of the heat off of us, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. Um, so, so now it's, it's you know, I, I think for, for what we're doing at, at, at inside of local and, um, what I think some of these new product areas represent is that, um, you know, maybe without adhering to kind of all the messaging inside of like modern third wave coffee shops, um, we're finding a bigger audience that, you know, I don't, I mean, if I were, if I were pitching a business right now, I would try to spin up some sort of charts and numbers that show, you know, the billions of dollars that are flowing inside of the coffee industry of which all of us, here, you know, uh, the broad spectrum of what we represent here, just this tiny fraction of. And you, you think about um, where people are spending their consumer dollars on coffee and how little of that we're capturing. And I think that, you know, the neighborhood coffee shop is always going to be an institution that, that will thrive in the right places and, and have its right audience. But if, if kind of the broader vision of what we care about at Origin and what we care about in specialty coffee, if it's going to be uh, growing and sustainable, then, you know, we, we need to, you know, attack these other kind of market opportunities in that white space. And, uh, but, like, let's take the contrarian view for a second, which is, again, like, if we're trying to define what high-end specialty is, and each one of you all, in a way, in terms of your work, is challenging that idea a bit, and I guess it begs the question, like, is the industry ready for it? Are people ready for it? You know, Tony, like when the news broke about the dollar cup of coffee, you know, 
personally, it, it became a big question. It's not so much that I felt that we were under siege, but it was just a question worth asking. You know, is this, the, are, are we ready for this right now? You know, or the argument could be like, are we too early? You know, are we too early in, in things where we're just trying to get to know people and all of a sudden it's like this, this sudden change. It's like you're starting a new relationship and then all of a sudden like, you know, very early through, like on the third date, all of a sudden you show up like looking completely different and talking a whole, with a different accent, you know, kind of thing almost. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's an open question. Um, you know, the, you know, in, in, in the Watts neighborhood, there is not a third wave coffee shop. There probably won't be any time soon. I don't want to presume that because uh, things can change fast. But um, I think, I, I don't think it's too early. I mean, if anything, I think it's, it's, it's maybe a little too late that we've kind of experienced a bit of a backlash from you know, from from a broader consumer uh, against kind of the the pretense of, of what they assume uh, high end specialty coffee is about that that it isn't seen um, by a lot of people as um, you know as an everyday drink. It's like a luxury uh, category of, of beverage, and and you know I always trot out the analogy with with kind of craft beer and the craft beer movement, which has done a very good job, I think, of of having kind of a an aesthetic, intellectual connoisseurship parity between people inside of the industry, the, the real experts, and then the people on the consumer side. And I think in coffee, we are still struggling to find ways to get, um, you know, non-industry consumers to, to kind of have at least some Venn diagram overlap with how we look at coffee. And I think that, um, you know, it, it's we should try as many new models as we can. I don't think that dollar coffee is necessarily a model that needs to, to go too far to explore that. But I think in certain contexts that, that looking at, you know, can we do things at scale or pricing or, um, you know, different product categories, different distribution channels, different styles of, of coffee bar, different styles of experience inside of coffee bars to, to kind of shake that up and, and be less of a, you know, less seen as kind of one um, aesthetic right. of, Kent, you, your business is taking specialty coffee and with the instant sort of side, um, whereas you might take the coffee house out of it, in terms of that idea of being a premium product, like you're positioned to price a little bit on the hot, you know, like a pour over sort of price in a cafe. Talk about that decision a little bit. Yeah, so our price point breaks down, so we ship uh, a box of five packs for $20. And so that comes in shipped at $4 a cup. That's where it starts in, you know, price breaks with quantity from there on our subscription model. And the idea behind that being, you know, we, my feeling is that we don't necessarily have to uh, play in the realm of traditional instant coffee we can say, yes, this is you know, an extremely high quality product. And with high quality products, um, there usually is a price correlation there. And uh, we want to represent coffee well and represent these really great coffees and say, yes, you are getting a pour over quality coffee, but accessible anywhere. Um, and so I feel 
there's pros and cons to uh, both sides of that spectrum. Um, obviously, that may turn a lot of people away, but um, I think there's something to be said also in justifying you know, a really premium product, even though it is instant. Molly, we'll finish up with you, and then we'll open the, the question um, to the, the floor with first questions. They make coffee, you design coffee equipment, but that said, um, uh, in your space, what was I going to, I, I had a question for you. Um, in, in your space, do you feel like, are there compromises, this was my question, are there compromises that you've had to make on the sort of like end product, like how well it brews in order to simplify and make it easier for people? I want to say no, but there are compromises everywhere. Anytime you do anything that you do, you have to make compromises about it because you have all of these different trade-offs. And even with the question of fast, cheap, good, we in for product creating products, we talk about um, time, quality, cost, and you really like pick two or really just pick one because you have to optimize for one. And when we approach the design for the products, we want what's most important to our end customer and understanding who our end customer is like which side, you know, which part of the scale are we going to look at? We want to spread our net as wide as possible to catch as much of, bo of all the markets that we can because we care about who those customers are and want to bring them into the coffee world if they haven't been. And if they're in the coffee world already, like do what's most important for those people. So we really stand on the like barista side and say, hey, what's important for making excellent, excellent specialty coffee? And then how can we bridge over to the people who don't know how to do this already? So I would say, yes, we have to make compromises, but we really want to keep the like excellence as our quality is number one. Gotcha. Sounds good. So a lot of questions in terms of conclusive answers. Let's see if we can't get a little bit closer. I don't know if we'll get all the way, but we do want to at this time open the floor to questions. Um, we have our, our microphone people out there. Yes, hello, right here. My name okay. is Kale. Hi, Kale. Hello. Let's imagine we're having this panel in five years' time with all of you sitting there. What are we going to talking about? Are we going to talk about the same things um, still? What's changed in five years? What do you think? Five years in the future? Yes. Where's the cold brew people? <laughs> That's a really good question. I'm hard, I'm biting my tongue really hard right now. I, so for me, I would I would be thinking about how our who is our customer and how our our customer is feeling. That would be primarily what I would wonder. Um, our our customer is in a place yet where they feel welcome, where they feel excited about specialty coffee. Um, where is the understanding between specialty coffee and between the consumer? Um, and how are, how, what have we done to, to grow that um, understanding? And what are we going to continue to do to grow that understanding? Anyone else want to take that? I think we'll be making lattes inside of giant warehouses and handing them to drones <laughs> built by yeah. Amazon that'll fly them to... Yeah, it's, it's going to be some sort of nightmarish dystopia. Self-driving cappuccinos. Right. Right? Yeah. Cool. Question. Any other questions? Yeah, Siobhan? Come on over. Thank you. 
Um, I guess this question is for Umeko and Kent. I think what you hear, you know, in the coffee industry, especially from the specialty side, the, one of the biggest complaints against the single serve coffee or something like a Keurig is the waste incurred with the packaging. So I wonder from the perspective of your two companies, how you've approached that and if you've thought about how that might scale and if you would think it'd be worth investing in sustainable packaging since that's something that seems to go hand in hand with quality on the specialty side. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so for, uh, for Sudden, particularly, um, we, if you just switch to using Sudden, you're switching to using something that's recyclable, um, and we're rolling out compostable, fully compostable packaging um, very soon as well. Um, so we definitely are a, a huge improvement over the waste produced by these kinds of, um, by like a K-cup, for example. Um, and that's something that we hold really core as part of our values. And that is part of just being a, a, our value of a kindness too, is like, how are we impacting the physical environment as well? Um, and with voila, you know, there's obviously an issue with the lifespan of instant and kind of like having something that is compostable or biodegradable and kind of balancing the two. Um, but the, the pouches are fully recyclable boxes are fully recyclable and kind of like moving into larger purchase orders too it becomes much more accessible to buy already recycled materials um, I think there that's a great question for a broader discussion longer discussion about processes too and how that affects because that's just a whole wormhole of like the impact of processing coffee um, even after uh, it's been roasted, so, yeah. Is there a shelf life for the instant product? The, from what I know, the FDA recommends um, at least uh, kind of like around 25 years. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's determined by a lot of different factors and like the moisture content of the final product as well and how well it's sealed. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Shudder. <laughs> awesome. Oh, we have a question up here. Hello. Uh, this is a really interesting topic that I've never thought about, so thanks for bringing it up. I have a question kind of a, approaching this like cheap question. Um, I think that there's sort of like, and I don't know if this is really a question, but there's kind of two different parties with specialty coffee, right? There are people who are like, we're trying to charge more and get people used to paying more for coffee because it costs, it should cost more because the people growing it, you know, should be paid more and because, you know, we should be doing better practices of like exporting it and things like that. Um, so do you, do any of you feel like there is any sort of compromise with like catering to Americans' idea of like having a cheap cup of coffee and like, you know, the sacrifice that it might cost on the other end, or is there one? So our team cheap representative <laughs> is Tony on the, on the end. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 I agree with the, the premise that people should be paying more for coffee. Um, I think that the, you know, this is sort of, um, I think, 
coffee has a, an, an attack surface remnant from like the 90s, early 2000s uh, fair trade marketing where unlike almost any other product that consumers encounter, um, they look at coffee and they see like lemonade stand economics. So they don't think about the fact that a loaf of Wonder Bread costs now $4 at, at the grocery store, but they, they think a lot about like, how do, how do they justify charging me $3 for a cup of coffee that the, the, the economic squirrel mind just dives right into it. Um, meanwhile, we have, um, you know, and, and on, the, on the other end of the price spectrum, people paying, you know, $50 a pound for the coffee that goes into their Nespresso capsules. And, and that's, you know, so I, I think that there, you know, I, I, I feel like there's, there's a legitimate argument to be made against what I'm doing in the context of, of taking good green coffee and, and turning it into a product that sells for that cheap. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the broader impact of that, I'm not, I'm not worried that I'm eating the lunch of, of any other third wave uh, specialty roasters in the context of, of that environment any more than I think, you know, McDonald's being, you know, on every corner in America selling coffee for a dollar is, is hurting um, the market for, for kind of third wave context coffee. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I wrestle with it. I think, you know, getting a, a big New York Times article, and, and if you read, I think there's like 450 comments on that article now, there's a lot of people that are like, yeah, you know, finally someone's like taking it down a notch. And, and Yeah, it's yeah. a little bit, there, I mean, that was kind of the part of my concern, right? That's like, right. I knew it. I knew it only needed to be a dollar. They're charging five bucks down the <laughs> exactly. street. Those jerks, right. you know, kind of so, thing. So it's, it's like the other, you know, there's kind of the two emperors without clothes uh, that we have to deal with, which is one, the fact that, um, you know, our batting averages, even at the best coffee shops, are still, you know, not as good as uh, we purport them to be. And we're, we're passing off a lot of mediocre experiences as being, you know, the ultimate coffee experience. And, and kind of having people feel like their palates aren't sophisticated enough and that's why they're not embracing this and maybe they're not, you know, they, they look at how passionate we are about coffee and they want to take a few steps back from that because that's obviously not them. Um, and then I think on the price side uh, that, that um, you know, everyone thinks that paying three, four, five dollars for a cup of coffee is too much. And again, craft beer has somehow managed to to not play dress up, to not sort of build the theatrics and the and the um, and 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 kind of all these second order signifiers to to make it um, palatable to people, and you know no one blinks at paying you know six, seven, eight dollars for you know someone lifting a tap of craft beer, which you know has a has a cost of goods per unit that is less than the dollar coffee that we're. Uh, pushing in our restaurant. Tony, let me add one question based like along those lines, and it's a, it's another sort of other kind of elephant in the room. Because when we're talking about the economics on that level, you know, we can't. The elephant in the room is race. So the ways that socioeconomic and economic power align with neighborhood geographies in urban areas, as well, and how that aligns with racial demographics. So in that way. I mean, what's your experience been? What's what's been happening? What are you uh, observing? Well, it's a it, tough one. It, it's it's a it's a tough one. It's a big can of worms. But I'll, I'll say I think two small things about that, which is that I think like. 
for all of us inside of the coffee community um, who kind of, you know, are looking at the entire value chain, like the diversity of, of ethnicity, class, culture inside of the coffee industry is tremendous um, across the whole spectrum. I think in the perception of high-end coffee, it looks like a, a, a very upscale niche and sort of, you know, latte drinkers and yada yada. It's all shorthand for, for a certain sort of White socioeconomic. People. Exactly. It's, it's, and, and we embrace a certain kind of minimalist, hyper-minimalist generic aesthetic that is very kind of... We love that Scandinavian sort of look, right? Yeah. So, so I think that that, um, you know, whether intentionally or not, I think excludes a lot of people who don't feel like that's their milieu. Um, and, and it also contributes to, I think, the, the perception that, you know, that, that $4 cappuccino is, is some sort of luxury item because look at who's buying it and look at, you know, how, how kind of narrow cast that is. So um, I think that, you know, if, if we sort of recontextualize what the coffee experience is, what the coffee shop is, I think... Um, a point I kind of wanted to go back to because we didn't make it at the start, but we talked about this uh, on our call, um, is that uh, you know all of us who are working in coffee bars, it is fast food, it is a convenience product that our, our average ticket is not any more than like a McDonald's or an In-N-Out burger. Um, people do need to cycle through fast that it's, um, we're, we're kind of already in the business, I mean, from a survival perspective of having a product that doesn't have great margins, um, that has a lot high potential for waste. Um, and, you know, if, if you don't have a line out the door and you're not moving bodies through, like from a business perspective, it's really hard to survive. Are we fast food? I mean, I think... I, I mean, fast food in the food world, there's like QSR, like quick service restaurant, which is like the McDonald's sort of realm. Yeah. And then there's the fast casual, which is more your Chipotle is sort of the, the, the big one, right? I mean, would you, in that way, would you put us in the quick serve sort of category, you think? Uh, I mean, maybe. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, how, how many shops have embraced batch brew in the last few years? And, and I mean, I, I think that would be, you know, a, a subtopic of this is sort of, you know, does anyone feel, I mean, there's a lot of you here that are probably working in shops that are exclusively, uh, single pour, pour over shops and some that are batch brew shops and some that are a hybrid of the two. And I, I mean, I think it's an open question um, as to, you know, does, does batch brewing diminish kind of the, the, the perception and quality and what you can charge for? Yes, sure it does. Because as you mentioned before, you're dumping it after every hour, hour and a half. It's hard to make a very, I mean, what I talk about a lot when we talk about the proliferation of single cup. And, you know, for that matter, back in the day, the, the sort of the, the tipping thing was the spark, so to speak, was Clover Brewer. And it, it was really like, you can talk about your coffee and not have to have this narrative of like, this is a very special Bourbon coffee from El Salvador. And instead, we, by ended, hand, up, and then we ended up it talking out. about the machine and, and that was sort of Right, right. But the idea at least that we're, we're crafting it per cup and that in that situation, at least in theory, at least there's a lot less waste. Right. But I think more in terms of like the, the value perception to the customer, it's this bespoke experience. It allows us to charge 
a more appropriate price. You get you know four or five, six dollars for a pour-over coffee, but but then we're sort of painting ourselves into a corner where now, like if we switch to batch brew, can we still charge five, six bucks for that same cup of coffee? Which I think I would hope. I don't know. Most of us would argue that if you're batch brewing properly, it should be as good or better than you know, or at least more consistent than uh, than a hand poured coffee and. Um, so I, I mean, I, I think it would be an interesting experiment to, uh, an expensive experiment to open up a shop that, that charged hand pour prices exclusively for batch brewed coffees. Cool, Todd? Yeah, I just wanna bring a question that was posted anonymously, but um, kind of a shift of gears. But while uh, you know, many baristas working uh, professionally struggle to, uh, you know, to be valued by consumers, even uh, to be valued within the businesses that they're, they're a part of, the teams they're a part of. Um, you know, making for easier, more accessible at-home coffee. Uh, how do you see that dovetailing with a more dignified role for the professional barista? I, I would like to speak to that. Um, I think that working conditions for baristas are a, a really critical issue that, that really need to be worked on by the industry. Um, and I think the customer, uh, you know, can only benefit from that, from a barista who's being uh, paid fairly, from a barista who's um, in a safe work environment with great HR policies. Um, and we, in coffee and specialty coffee, talk so much about like, you know, hospitality, empathy, treat your customers so well, while the person being asked to perform this emotional labor isn't receiving that same support from their employers. Um, and I think that is so huge. And I think this idea of, oh, well, the barista won't be respected if we're doing coffee X, Y, Z, I think that's kind of a red herring. I think the real issue here is, um, is, is baristas and, and all people really uh, need to be treated with, with kindness and respect and dignity. But that, that, that does somewhat put a pit us as an industry in a certain kind of way where if your business is having cafes um, and you're, you're on a certain end, and then whereas, for instance, especially for the two of you, and for that matter, Molly, like if the narrative is, this is something that's as good as, or if not better than, because of course you can do it in your pajamas or naked, and that's always a better thing, you know, at home. Um, if it's as good as, or better, but cheaper, easier, such and such. I mean, doesn't that sort of create a natural kind of on one end confusion and on the other end a little bit of a conflict? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think what, what we do at Sutton is very much about bringing people into specialty coffee and saying, hey, like, here's this experience. Maybe you don't live in a city that's right nearby a cafe, but you still can like have this experience. And um, what we do is really inspired by cafes and by baristas. And I was a barista for 10 years. Um, and, uh, and I think that what we're doing is just saying, hey, we want people to love coffee. We want people to have really beautiful coffee and have great experiences. Um, and that is what uh, we focus on more than saying like, oh, this is better than this or oh, this is, you know, like just as good. We're like, we're like hey, we just, we want you to be happy and have great coffee. And, um, and I think in that way, we're so aligned with, 
with the rest of the specialty coffee industry. I also want to piggyback on that. Totally, we want to bring people into the specialty coffee world, but also you go to a cafe for different reasons than you brew coffee at home usually. It's not a price difference. Like your coffees aren't cheap as like no brewer instant coffees. It's not about a price point as much as it's about you're creating a different environment when you go to a cafe than when you're at home. That's what I, my perspective. I mean, how are people gonna take selfies if they don't have, no, I'm just kidding. Um, we had a couple more questions. One, Richard? Yeah. Uh, Tony, I just want to go back to that lemonade stand economics. Uh, yeah. I will, you, will be using those, that term moving forward, and I will be giving you credit for that. <laughs> That's really brilliant. Um, each of you are trailblazers, both um, in your current companies and then the organizations you work for. I'd love to hear from you, you know, who are the organizations or the people that you look to for inspiration in you know, building specialty coffee outside of just the cafe or the grocery store? <laughs> oh, that's, that's a tall one. Um, you know, I, I used to say this kind of jokingly when we were working on the first uh, Intelligentsia shop in Los Angeles. I, sh I shouldn't even go down this path, but um, that, that uh, I was like, we, we, want, we want to be a cult. And, and I was using Scientology as, as, the, as, as the analogy. Um, you want to be the Tom Cruise of coffee. <laughs> exactly. I want to be the maverick of coffee. Um, but it, it, was, it was this thing where like, I felt like you know, the, the, the best shops at that point, we, we were going full Xenu on our customers right out of the gate and like, talking about you know, space aliens and, and you know, reprogramming their brains. And instead, we should be offering the free stress test that this is, you know, hey, just come on in and, and build this sort of, you know, initiation pathway that has many incremental steps. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, I mean, culturally now we're, you know, we're, we're a scene. I think we're becoming rapidly a more inclusive and more dynamic and fast moving scene. And that, um, you know, for, for my sort of uh, rhetoric about you know, the, the sort of narrow cast aesthetic of third wave orthodox coffee bars. Um, I, I think that the, the trend is that things are getting very interesting very fast and more inclusive very fast. Um, uh, so yeah, in, in terms of like inspiring companies or products or um, I-, I It's a tough one because that's the thing about us in coffee, right? That very often those things, we're we, at a we loss. We envy other, other right. industries right. and other companies. We want to be like wine. We want to be like chefs. We want to be, you know, like beer. We but don't want to be We drunk. have unique challenges. Right. That, um, you know, and I, think, and I think some of our, uh, you know, some of our struggles and limitations are kind of self-imposed that we, we climbed up, you know, a sort of odd way to get to where this coffee phenomenon is now. And it's... Um, you know, I mean, the, the nature of how people spend money and the way economics works and, um, you know, the way Amazon is gobbling up the universe that, yeah, uh, for sure. you know, I, I mean, the, the, back to the question of like, what things are going to look like five years down the road, I think that, um, you know, hospitality matters and it's going to matter more and more as people have, you know, other options to, 
experience this product. You still category. can download coffee from the internet, not yet. Not yet. I not tried. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> we have like time for maybe two more questions. One's over there. There's what microphone people? Harper. Um, yeah, I kind of want to go back to something, Tony, you, you've said a couple of times, which, you know, this idea that coffee, you know, isn't a luxury product, which in fact, I think uh, specialty coffee has worked really hard to kind of reposition coffee, which is quite honestly cheap because it relies on certain histories of colonization that make it cheap. So if coffee were to be priced at a way that like actually reflected all the labor that goes into it, um, you know, obviously then it's much more expensive, both at like source and also, you know, at the end of, you know, the line with the barista. So I kind of just want to go back to like thinking about how do you guys reconcile like the fact that coffee really is a luxury product with accessibility. Thanks. That has a lot to do with coffee in America, I think for sure. You know, right? I, I think that the cultural context of what we have in America, well, I was talking about with some people on Twitter, the, um, the Esmeralda auction from last week, you know, went for $601 a pound and it was bought by a coffee importer based out of Hong Kong and his intent is to break it up and sell it to roasters in, in Asia. For them, coffee is very firmly a, a luxury product. Like they have no, they're not worried about that idea of, um, of like confusing, you know, they don't have people, the latte sipper sort of uh, narrative that we have in the States, like we don't, they don't have that type of conversation. The exact same person will wake up, have instant Nescafe, and then later in the afternoon will have a $30 cup of coffee at some like transformative, innovative Taiwanese, you know, coffee shop. So in that way though, we are in America. I mean, I guess it goes back to the question before also, like that challenge of like, are you messing with our, you know, our narrative of trying to build value by having a cheaper cup? Right. I mean, I think um, maybe um, it's it's. I mean, it's it's a legitimate concern. Um, you know, it, it, I think, and maybe this is you know because I'm in my 40s and um, uh, it's it's an age thing, but. When I walk into the ever-expanding beverage aisle at the grocery store and I see, you know, $5 bottles of kombucha and, you know, three, four, five dollar like cold brew products, you know, some of which I know are, are not at all good. Um, and, you know, and the sort of bottled juices and it, it seems like, you know, the consumer trend is that people are willing to spend more on those things, that we're seeing kind of a, an, an inflation there that is probably good for, for us. Um, I think the question of, you know, what people should be paying for a cup of coffee versus, you know, where the, the market price for quality coffee, uh, green coffee should be is, um, you know, beyond my pay grade as an armchair economist. Um, I'd be interested to eliminate standard economists, economists though, apparently, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, as I understand it, like on a, on a, you know, inflation adjusted basis that what people were paying for even mediocre green coffee a few decades ago was much higher than what we're paying in specialty for green coffee now. Um, and yet the, the price that we're charging at retail and the consumer perception of price is radically different than the, you know, traditional 15 cent free refills diner coffee of, you know, the 
sort of nostalgic American past. So, so I don't, I, it's, a, it's a roundabout way of saying, like, I really don't have a good answer for that. I mean, would it be safe to say that what you're doing at local and yes, please, it's not meant to replace especially coffee experience in any way, shape, or form. It's more, I mean, positioned at local, in, in the restaurants. It's a beverage. It's one of the choices. It's, it's you know, the economics are different. I think we talked about this offline. Like, if coffee was all you sold and the only thing you sold, then it would be a different We'd story. We'd go out of business in 15 minutes, yeah. <laughs> it would not work. Um, so, you know, I, I, think, I think that all of these questions about price, you know, and, and, and it's kind of dangerous, I think, for us to look at, at coffee as being exceptional in terms of the rules that it has to obey and, and how it operates in the marketplace. And we should look at, you know, other industries from, you know, bread to beer to wine and um, uh, for, for examples and counterexamples. Um, uh, where was I going with that? Um, But it's different, but those things are different. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I just think we, we get in this bubble where we're looking for kind of a one-size-fits-all utopian answer for like what's, you know, there's this problem in specialty coffee, we're fighting this fight, it's all pushing in this trajectory and, and, and that, you know, somehow there, it's like a riddle that, that we're going to solve through you know, Twitter debates or something. And, and I think that it's, it's really diverse and kind of, um, to, to give an example of, of my thinking when I started Tonks was that from a coffee bar perspective, that, that first uh, Intelli shop in Los Angeles was, you know, lying out the door all day long, like going gangbusters. Um, if you think about it from, from kind of a, uh, an internet marketing perspective, you're 99% of the people that are crossing the threshold into that into that shop are giving you money. Like your conversion rate is nearly 100% on people that come into your coffee bar. When you're running an online business and you're like trying to build an audience and get people to land on your website, you do this kind of funnel analysis and you know, you're lucky if like 4% of those people even convert to you know, handing you an email address, let alone a credit card or something. So it's, it's a different mentality about customer development. And I felt like in, in especially coffee at that time when I, when I left Intelligentsia was, you know, we, we weren't really doing customer development on the retail end, we were doing it on, you know, the wholesale end, which was where the, the bulk of, of those businesses were at the time. And I think, you know, as the sort of front lines of like expanding the market for high-end specialty coffee, we have to look at like, what are we doing to get those people that are not already buying our product or not already bought into kind of third wave coffee that if, you know, if, if you're opening a coffee bar tomorrow and, and you know, your, your sort of idea of who's gonna be your audience is the people that were going to, you know, Ritual down the street or Four Barrel over here, you know, that that's your, your customers, then you're not really developing kind of a, a new audience for this product. But in product. that way, I would say that, that for Meco and Kent, you know, that's very much your business, right? It's trying to use that, I mean, most of the, all, all the sales really are online pretty much, and, and for you as well, that idea of being, having to use that kind of marketing, you know, we haven't, as an industry, spent, as a third wave sort of category, 
really spent much, much attention or money on traditional marketing. We've kind of let the product speak for ourselves and leverage a lot of free press through food media and through just sort of being buzzy in that way. Well, for decades, coffee marketing has been for like what we would consider first wave coffee has been spent millions of dollars indoctrinating people to believe and feel a certain way about coffee and how it should be and use these words to describe coffee. And we're seeing the result of that and we're living within that and specialty being so recent. Um, I mean, the analogy to craft beer. Um, I mean, they've seen that effect as well with branding for like the cheapest, coldest beer that gets you drunk the fastest, <laughs> you know, and now you're seeing craft beer makers try to break out of that and they have had success, but obviously there's, there's some people who throw their hands up still about a $9, you know, bottle of beer. Um, but with kombucha, I mean, that's, uh, that's new. They haven't had that indoctrination of branding and marketing to tell people it is not worth this. You know, and so the market will decide what coffee's worth. And my intuition is that hopefully we can push forward with um, providing value in quality and experiences to where people learn to justify a different price point since we're, we've been talking about it so much. But we just live in a world where we've had decades of that. Right. Yeah. We had one more question. Oh, okay. All right. Um, one of the things that I feel like I really learned through getting to know each of you and what your work is, is the idea that there has been a fairly unified, loosely, but still fairly you know, unified voice in this third wave, uh, especially coffee category. And whether we're ready for it or not is sort of irrelevant. That's part of living in a, in a, in a capitalistic sort of society, right? In an economy that way. That, um, but what's been comforting is realizing that uh, regardless of some of the unintended consequences, that what we're all talking about up here really does fundamentally represent that idea of trying to meet more people, new people, maybe unreached people where they are, where they don't, we've heard mentioned, where they might not live next to one of our cafes or doesn't have that accessibility or has a certain lifestyle where they don't, um, it, it, coming into a cafe is not convenient or somewhat realistic, right? And so um, in that way, to be able to look at it as a certain type of extension of our hospitality as an industry and as individual brands and as uh, individual people as well. So that all said, thanks so much. Thank you to all our panelists. You've been listening to a talk from the Barista Guild's Bloom podcast series. To hear more on topics relevant to the specialty coffee industry, visit www.sca.coffee forward slash podcasts and subscribe to the series. Thank you for listening.